Let's read starting with verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3. Now hear God's word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been made known and revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. Of this Gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. I listened to uh, a fascinating interview this uh, past weekend. I think it was Friday on National Public Radio. And it was an interview with an author. Her name is Jessica Lamb the Shapiro. I don't know if any of you happened to catch that interview. But she just recently wrote a book called Promised Land, My Journey through America's self-help culture. Uh, Jessica Lamb was raised uh, in a home. Uh, Her father was a child psychologist, and he wrote over 40 books on child psychology and self-help. Now, he never hit it big, and he was not a well-known author, but he had some, some really interesting things to say. And, of course, his daughter became his guinea pig, and hence the poster child for the self-help culture. The result in her life was an extreme ambivalence. She hated self-help. And she found all kinds of things wrong with self-help. And she avoided it uh, with a passion. At the same time, she had problems in her life and she needed help. And so she was drawn to uh, the self-help culture. The self-help industry, whether you realize it or not, is over a billion dollars a year. That includes Christian self-help. And uh, some of the most uh, uh, prosperous authors today in Christianity write self-help books. In fact, you could leave Jesus out of their books and they would just be self-help books. And so what they do is they write a self-help book and they salt and pepper it with Jesus and sell it to gullible Christians like us. Now, one of the things that uh, this young lady's father did is he came up with the perfect child game 
the perfect child game. And here's what, uh, and parents listen carefully, because if you're honest, this can really help you and save your children. Uh, It's a pretty extreme statement, but there's a lot of truth here. So listen to the the child self-help game. Here's what you do. Think this sentence, and I want you to do it now. I want a child who, dot, 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 and then you finish the sentence. I want a child who, dot, 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 finish the sentence. Now she writes in her book this, listen. My father did this exercise with me in mind. Here's this little girl, she's the guinea pig, she's the the poster child for self-help. My father did this with me in mind. And here's what he said, listen and see if you catch it. Those of you that have been listening are going to catch it. Those of you that have not been listening are not going to catch it. But I'll explain it to you. Here it goes. Listen. My father did this exercise with me in mind. I want a child who is respectful, who listens to me, is happy, free, creative, bright, warm, loving, and has good values. I want a child who is respectful, listens to me, happy, free, creative, warm, loving, and has good values. Now, he continued. Here you go. Listen, parents and older people too. I'm going to bring it to you as well. Here's what her father realized. Listen, amazing insight. If I had more time and had thought about what I was writing... I probably would have put down the same things but in the reversed order. I was surprised. Listen, people, listen. I was surprised to see that concern about my little girl's behavior occurred to me before anything else. I was surprised to find out my biggest concern was her behavior before anything else. He wanted her to be respectful and to listen to him before anything else. Before she was happy, before she was creative, before she was bright or warm or had loving values and good values. He wanted her to listen and to be respectful. He wanted her behavior to precede her character. Do you see it? He wanted her behavior to precede her character. And the grammar of the Gospel, think what you want about self-help, folks, but the Gospel is about self-help. It's about you helping yourself, but in a certain way and with a certain understanding. It is not a denial that you need help. And it is not a denial that you need to help yourself. But it does tell us something different about the way we go about transformation, about changing who we are. The Gospel grammar is simply this. Write it down. Drill it down into your hearts and your Christianity will take on a whole different flavor. It will become completely different. And the Gospel grammar is this. Who you are determines what you do. If you get those backwards and you say, what I do determines who I am. And I watched two programs this week on television, two movies, and it was all about what you do is who you are. 
That's how you define yourself in this culture. And I'm telling you, if you do that, you no longer have the gospel. You have something else. But you do not have the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Christ comes in and He takes dead people. What did Apostle Paul say? You were dead in your trespasses and sin and you were children of what? Children of wrath. And then God comes in. No bidding on your part. He doesn't see anything worthy or, or commendable in us. He comes in and out of sheer grace, He does something to us and in us that changes who we are. And then He goes on and says, now live out of who you are. Let that be the motivation for your actions. Get that right and your Christianity takes on a whole different complexion. It's no longer a burden. The law of God no longer becomes odious and weighty. And oh, I can't keep the law. And I can't do this and I can't do that. And I'm just a big fat sinner. And I'm no good with nothing. And I'm no good for nothing. And on and on and on. It just goes this, this horrible ethos that has been with us way too long. At the same time, we're not to think, oh, I'm great, I'm wonderful, I'm so wonderful, and all this other stuff. No, that's not where we're going. You have to hold the two intention as we talked about last week. Dr. R.C. Sproul says this in his little commentary on Ephesians. Here we get, listen, this is gold, folks. Here we get a glimpse into Paul's character. His self-understanding with respect to who He is. Now that's from R.C. Here we get a glimpse into Paul's character and self-understanding in respect to who he was and what his task was, what his passion was, and what was his mission. Do you see how R.C., who's a master at using language, he's a theologian after all, I mean, he's saying Paul starts with who he is, his character, who God made him on the road to Damascus. He knocked him off his donkey and changed him and said, now that you're different, now that you're new, now that you're a recreation, now that you're a new person in Christ, go do this. And Paul did it. Wouldn't you love that, folks? That's my question to you this morning. Wouldn't you love to have that kind of clarity, crystal clear clarity about who you are? And then what you do is not going to cause so much hand-wringing and angst that I see as pastor in a church where people are going, what am I supposed to do? What is God's will for me? God's will for you is to live. Live your life wherever you are. Fully. And quit wringing your hands, or what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Live. Do whatever He's put before you to do. Enjoy what you're doing. See what you're doing as a redeemed thing, as a good thing. Whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, a, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, it doesn't matter what you do. Sin notwithstanding. Whatever you do. I mean, Scott and I talk about this at the gym, I don't know how often. Because we, Scott is dealing with people all the time. I'm dealing with people. And people ask, what is, my, what is God's will for me? God's will for you is to be happy. Oh no, I heard somebody say, God doesn't care if I'm happy. He wants me to be holy. Right? How many of you have heard that? I want, I want to scream at the top of my lungs. Why pit happiness and holiness over against one another? Why say it's either or? 
Why not say holiness, true holiness, finding out what the grace of God is in your life and drilling it down deeply into your life? That's going to make you happy. The one thing that everybody's looking for. And holiness, by the way, is not primarily about your behavior. It's not about whether you uh, drink and smoke and chew and dance with girls that do. How many of you have heard that one? It's not about all that stuff. It's not about behavior. Holiness is primarily about identity, who you are. God told Moses, He told the Israelites, I've separated you to be a holy nation to me. I did that first. Chapter 19 of Exodus. Chapter 19, as I said, I brought you out on eagle's wings. I redeemed you. I bought you. I, I, I conquered the Egyptians for you. I brought you out of slavery to this mountain, to Mount Sinai. Chapter 19 of Exodus. Guess what comes in chapter 20? What? The law. He never gives them the law first. He says, okay, to be my people, you have to do this and this and this. No, he says, I've made you my people. Now do this and this and this. So his character, this inward being, has to change. So very quick, that's a long introduction. I apologize, but I'll go through the points quickly. Becoming the real you, what I think almost everybody here yearns for, is true integrity. To be the real you. To find your true self. Become the real you. And we'll, we'll look at this real quickly under three headings. First one, the way up is the way down. The way up is the way down. Christianity is counterintuitive that way. I'll explain it in a moment. The way up is the way down. Number two, what does real growth and real prosperity, or not prosperity, sorry, uh, I'm not Joel Osteen. Uh, what, what does real growth, <laughs> oh God forgive me, all right. Uh, what does real growth and progress look like? What does it look like, really? And uh, finally, the gospel ministry, mystery, uh, a new humanity. The gospel mystery, a new humanity. So, the way up is the way down. What does real growth and progress, or what we call in theology sanctification, but don't get hung up on the word, it's growing and becoming more the real you. What does that look like? And third, the gospel mystery uh, a new humanity. So first, the way up is the way down. What this means is simply this, folks. And I've said this over the years. You've heard me talk about the way up is the way down. The way up, in other words, the way to become more certain, more assertive, more sure, the, the way to have true boldness in your life, certainty about what God wants from you and wants you to do, the way up towards boldness, towards God's calling in your life, whatever that may be, the way up is actually the way down. So boldness, the way up, the way to get there is the way down. Or true humility. True humility. Uh, C.S. Lewis, a famous quote of C.S. Lewis, uh, said that true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You see the difference, folks. It's not saying, I'm no good for nothing. I'm a no good sinner. I'm a worm. I'm the biggest, I'm the worst person in the world. By the way, you are not the worst person in the world. I know who the worst person in the world is. And it's not you. You're wondering who it is, right? 
I'm the worst person in the world. I know myself. I know those dark corners. There are corners in my heart and life I don't even want to go because I'm afraid of them. I'm afraid I would lose my mind if I actually looked at them completely. So God keeps those curtains closed in our lives. Don't, don't make any mistake. He doesn't show you all that He knows about you. But I know myself. And so I have to say, I'm worse than anybody. Because I don't know you. I don't know how bad you are. I don't know how good you are. To know that truly and to think less about yourself and more about Jesus Christ and what He has done in your life and the newness of your creation and who you are will take you to a place of deep, profound humility. Look at how Paul does it in these first few verses. He does it throughout the 13, but I don't have time to go through it. Look at, look at verse 1. He says, I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner. I'm not a prisoner on behalf of me. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm a prisoner because of you. Amazing boldness, audacity. And verse 2, assuming that you've heard of me, I mean, here he's almost bragging. Come on, Paul, don't you know you're supposed to think bad of you? No, I assume that you've heard of me. Look at me, look at, look at verse 3. How the mystery of the gospel has been made known to me. He doesn't make any bones about who he is and what he knows. He knows a mystery, mysterium, something that's hidden. He knows it. Look at verse 4. You can perceive, he says, he tells him, you can perceive my insight. I mean, look, read what I'm saying. I'm smarter than all of you. Do you see what he's doing? Verse 5, it was not made known in the generations past. Now it's been made known, and I'm one of the guys that knows it. What an amazing audacity. He says, now it's been revealed. It's been revealed to me. Wow. I mean, you could never get away with that in most Christian churches today. They'd want the Apostle Paul to leave. Imagine that. But look what he does. I picked, I choose what part I wanted to read. Look how he puts it in context. I'm a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles, assuming you've heard of me, of the stewardship of God's grace. How did he get it? Given to me for you. You see, with his boldness is this incredible humility. The mystery's been made known to me. How? By revelation. I didn't make this up. It came to me from the Holy Spirit. You can perceive my insight into the mystery, how it's not been made to other generations, but has now been revealed to who? The holy apostles and prophets. How? By the Spirit. Paul, well, scholars have long recognized this unique mixture, not only in Paul, but in many of the writers in the, in the New Testament. And where it came to its, its nexus, its highest expression was in Jesus Christ. And that amazing quote I read you last week by James Stewart, the great Presbyterian minister of a century ago, who said, in him was this coalescence, this cohesion of amazing boldness where he could stride in with power and authority and throw people out of the temple and then in the next minute have little children sitting on his lap and tenderly stroking them and loving them and forbidding anybody to dare to take those children away from him. What power, what winsome strength 
the mixture. One, one writer said that the reason that Moses was the meekest, you know Moses was called the meekest man that ever lived, right? You all remember that? That the reason that Moses could say he was the meekest man that ever lived about Moses is because he had absolute and total power under control. He had power to split the earth, to bring rock water out of rocks. He had the power of life and death in his administration as the ruler over Israel as they came out of Exodus. And yet he was under control. And that was boldness and humility. Scholars have long recognized that to be the real you, to be a whole human being, you're going to need to be bold and at the same time, unbelievably humble. Character, what R.C. calls character and self-understanding, the who-ness of you, who you are, propelling you to the task and the mission, the what. So what does real growth look like? Let's look at the segment. Look at verse 7, uh, seven, eight, nine, around that. What does real growth and progress look like? Well, it looks like 100% boldness and 100% humility. Not 50% boldness, not some lukewarm middle of the way. No, it's 100% of both. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace given by, working, by the working of His power. Look how Paul, now he's going all in. He's saying, I was given this, but here's how I got it. I was given it by the working of His power. To me, it's almost as if he's surprised to be even saying, I can't believe, I, I can't believe it's to me. You know, I meet people. I'm from, I'm from El Paso. I meet people all the time. And they say, what are you doing now? I met somebody just the other day. What are you doing now? I was here at a bat mitzvah. The guy I went to high school is here. What are you doing now? I'm the pastor of a church. I mean, this guy and I, we don't even remember much of what went on in high school for good reasons. And he looked at me and he goes, wow. I go, yeah, isn't it amazing? <laughs> I, go, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm the most surprised of everybody. <laughs> What does it look like? It looks like radical humility, radical boldness. I am the least. I am the very least. He uses a word in Greek that means I'm less than the least, if you can imagine. It's a superlative word. I'm less than the least. I'm the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to me to preach the gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light the plan of God hidden from all generations. Do you see what Paul's saying? Of, of all the people God could have chosen, He went and He found the least one. And so I want to tell you folks, you think, well, I'm not gifted and I'm not called and I'm not this and I'm not... Stop it! Stop that! Who, Paul said in 2 Corinthians, who is adequate... For this ministry, who can stand up and proclaim stuff about an infinite God that is in common? Who can do that? I sure can't. Of course we can't. But we're not relying on our giftedness and our, 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 our power uh, complex that's in each point of us. We're, look, we're looking to the Holy Spirit to do something remarkable through His truth. 
I'm the very least, less than the least of all the saints. Let me give you something. J.I. Packer is the first one I heard this from. It's amazing. Early in Paul's ministry, uh, he wrote 1 Corinthians. This is during his, his three missionary journey. Uh, he wrote a group of letters. He wrote Galatians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and Romans. He wrote those letters during his first few years as an apostle on his missionary journeys. And he said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Sounds pretty humble, doesn't it? Least of the apostles, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. This is when he's a young apostle, he's on the missionary trail, he's doing his thing, sounds pretty humble. Years later, in the middle of his ministry, he writes Ephesians, he writes... uh, Philippians, he writes Colossians, he writes Philemon. And guess where he is? He's in jail, his first imprisonment in Rome. And he writes these letters and he says this. Right before he was the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Now he says, I'm the least, less than the least of what? All the saints. Paul goes from apostle to saint. Doesn't sound like he's making much progress, is it? He goes from apostle, now he's just one of the saints. And he's less than the least of the saints. So he has been demoted. Right? The end of his ministry, he's in a Roman prison the second time. He's ready to be beheaded. And he writes 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And Philemon, I'm sorry, Philemon belongs in this group. And here's how he characterizes himself. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the foremost of sinners. Paul goes from the least of the apostles to the least of the saints to the chief of sinners. Do you see the progress there, folks? This is a man who has become completely enamored with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has become huge, large in Paul's mind, in his eyes, in his spiritual windshield of his life. The biggest and greatest and most glorious thing about Paul is I have one boast. I have not much else to boast about, but I have this one. I boast in the cross of Christ. You see it. He has gone from the least of the apostles to the least of the saints to the foremost of sinners. And this is the man who was arguably one of the closest saints ever to God. Listen to this. Spiritual maturity takes a downward trajectory. We're looking for progress. We want to be like this the father of this man. We want to see behavior. And folks, parents, you think you're having success if your children are well-behaved. And there's, I'll give you that. It's good to have well-behaved children. I'm not sure what that's like because of mine. (laughs) I know it must be wonderful, but if you have well-behaved children and they don't have a sense of who they are in Jesus Christ... They just become little Pharisees. 
and they'll grow up to be big Pharisees. Give them the gospel of grace, the same one, by the way, that you need for you to progress and get better. Do they need to behave, parents? Am I saying they don't need to behave? Did anyone hear me say that? Okay, no, I'm not saying they don't. Yes, you do need house rules. Yes, you do need children that are well-behaved. But as you're teaching them behavior, you want to be working on their heart so that they fall in love with Jesus Christ. Spiritual maturity takes a downward trajectory as you make more and more of the cross, more of Jesus, more of the Gospel, more of grace. You will shrink in your own estimation. You will become more aware of your personal weakness, sin, need of grace, and your meritorious poverty. I love that. Meritorious poverty. You have nothing to commend you. You don't go to God and say, look how well I'm doing. You're meritorious. Each statement the Apostle Paul makes about his leastness, in all three of these verses, by the way, is surrounded by the greatness of the cross. Paul surrounds his, his words of leastness and lessness with the glories of the cross. So spiritual advancement, growth, and maturity is not... Listen carefully. Not more of Him and less of you. Not more of Him, less of you. But more of the cross. More of the unsearchable riches of grace. The mercy of God. More of the Gospel, which then makes more of Him and more of you. In other words, You do not shrink or disappear. God's not wanting to kind of erase you and replace you with something else. He wants you. He died for you. He gave His Son for you. You do not shrink or disappear. You grow. You progress. You shine. You become more glorious. The Apostle Paul says in another place, we go from one glory to another glory. In this, in this way of sanctification or growth. We become His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's the last chapter. We become conformed to the image of Christ. You see, the things, here's how you know, folks, the things that usually upset us and make us angry, the things that rob us of our joy and our peace, the things that produce fear and guilt, these are diagnostic. If you look carefully at those things, they are what is lying underneath underneath the surface and is driving us, keeping us enslaved. If you're willing to go down and look, you'll find them. And I encourage you every week to do this, folks. Those things that take away your peace, produce anger. If, If something really makes you mad, let me just say it, I'll, I'll be very plain. If something really makes you mad, even if you're right to be mad, it's never about that thing. And I said never. Do you hear me say never? It's never about that thing. There is always something else lying underneath the surface. You may, be, you may actually have a, a right to be mad. 
Jesus got extraordinarily angry when he walked into the temple and he saw that the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to come and worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, they had a court set up for the Gentiles. And guess what was in that court of the Gentiles? A marketplace. And he got furious. They wouldn't dare have put that marketplace just on the other side of that little four-foot wall that was there. Because that was for the Jews. That was for the women, Jewish women. That was for the other people that were more holy than thou. And Jesus saw that. He goes, there's a four-foot wall here. And on one side, this is all holy, sanctified space. You can't even... A Gentile, they had signs up there. If a Gentile crossed over, it was at risk of death. But in the court of the Gentiles, it's a filthy bazaar. A shopping mall. And he got furious. He got angry. But was it about that? Let me ask you folks. Think carefully. Was it about the the marketplace? Was it about them selling and trading animals and changing money and doing all that? Was it about that? What was lying underneath the surface of Jesus' anger? What? This is my Father's house and it shall be called a house of prayer. How dare you! Turn my Father's house into a marketplace. It's a house of prayer. That's what was motivating Him. And very few of us understand that kind of righteous indignation. Most of the time, we're off on something else. And if you're willing to go look, you'll find it and you can start to work on it with the Gospel. You don't shrink or disappear. You grow, you shine. Things that used to destroy you, they don't anymore. And you start to work on them. And it'll take you your whole life. But at least you have a way of progress completely different from self-help. You have the help of the Holy Spirit working in your life. And getting better will often look like a downward trajectory. You'll see more of your failures, more of your sin, more of your fault. I'm getting tired of it actually. He's wearing me out. Because I think I'm doing well and the next day I see how beautiful He is and I go, golly, i got a long way to go. But don't despair. Reach out. Lay hold on Him. That's what the Apostle Paul is showing us in these verses. Finally, the Gospel mystery. Very quickly, I'm sorry I've gone a little bit long. The Gospel mystery in verse, nine, or verse 6. This is the mystery. explains it. Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. There's a lot of theology there, folks. I really can't get into it. But what he's saying is that you and I, who most of us, I think, I don't know if there's anyone here that's Jewish uh, in their heritage, uh, but most of us are Gentiles in our, our heritage, our, our ethnicity. And what he's saying is that all of the brokenness that was represented in the Gentiles, the farness away, the alienation, the sin, all of the things that kept us from being in God's household, part of His family, all of those things now have been broken and taken away. Now, you can be the real you. A new, true you. True humanity. You can find your true self. Instead of hate, I don't know how many people I've talked to you folks, including myself, there's a certain amount of self-loathing and self-hatred. How do we dare to hate ourselves when God loves us so dearly that He would give His Son It's not that you find self-esteem apart from Him, but that you find your esteem in Him. 
Do you see it? We find our esteem in Him. A reunification of all of those broken pieces and parts. He begins to put them together. And it can be painful. But He puts them together so that you can become a whole person. The real you. Look at these verses here, 10 and on. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places according to the eternal purpose realized in Christ in whom, listen, here it is, in whom we have boldness, access with confidence. How? Through faith in Him. Humility. Boldness, access. How? Through faith in Him. What that means is it's not about you. It's about what He's done. He created access. He made it possible for you and I to come and step into His presence. There's a new humanity that will be evident That's our goal. That's what Christ the King... I don't know what other churches want, folks, but what I want for our church and what I hope you want for your life and for your church, for Christ the King, is that we truly exemplify what Jesus has done in each one of our lives. And people will see in us an amazing boldness and and certainty of what we believe. Our theology, we don't have to apologize to anyone. But at the same time, an amazing winsomeness and humility. There are things we don't understand. We don't have the answers to everything. A new humanity that's 100% radical boldness, 100% radical humility, just like Paul, just like our Savior Jesus. A new humanity comes at a cost. And what is that cost, folks? The motive behind all of what we say and do here at Christ the King is that Jesus Christ, the one who had true self-esteem, the one who was God Himself, the Word of God, was made flesh. The amazing boldness of all creation, the one who spoke and the world came into existence merely by the power of His Word, that great being clothed Himself with humanity. Christ's humiliation consists in this in His being born. And that, in a low condition, made under the law. Undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and cursed death on the cross. That's what our Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches. That's Christ's humiliation. The Creator of Heaven coming down to give His life for you and me. And as we step into that reality that Jesus Christ did that for us, let me ask you, what can you hold back from Him who gave that to you? What can you hold back? All we can say is, I'll do what you say. I'll go where you send me. I lay the sword of my life at your feet. Command me. I'm yours. 100%. I'm all in. I may be a mess, but I'm here with my mess. And he says, welcome. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. What a God. Sinclair Ferguson, I'll leave you with this. He said, in whatever form of service, in whatever form of service we engage, that means your normal service of work uh, every day, whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, a butcher, baker, candle, whatever you do, 
in your normal daily life of service. We engage and we live out of the very same resources, the unsearchable riches of Christ, to which we point others, the unsearchable riches of Christ. We live out of those unsearchable riches and we point people to those unsearchable riches. Jesus for you, Jesus as you, so that we can be everything we need to be to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, thanks uh, for the unsearchable riches of our Lord Jesus Christ, how we'll spend our whole lives trying to learn and understand and progress in our knowledge of Him. And the closer we get, the more we see our frailties and our sins. But You're not holding Your nose or rejecting us, but instead You're drawing us on, leading us on, holding out Your hands to us like a parent to a little child learning to walk and saying, come on, trust me, come to me. I won't let you fall. You're not looking for perfection in us, Father. You've already seen perfection in Him. And so we do pray that in our lives we can reflect the beauty of that bold Savior and humility. We pray these things in His great name.